0: Before we get into today's podcast, I'd like to remind you that I'm organizing a trip to France in April, 2024. It's a trip that's designed especially for people who are excited about Texas wine. 10 travelers, plus my colleague Pablo Valky and I, will spend 10 days exploring Southern France from Marseille to Bordeaux. We'll visit over a dozen wineries and vineyards, enjoy the foods of each region, and see some important cultural sites too. If that sounds like something you'd like to do, Email me for more information, or check out my blog post on france2024 at thisistexaswine.com. But don't wait, because the trip is already halfway sold out. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode number 70, Happy Texas Wine Month. My guests today are some of the pioneers of the Texas wine industry. Paul and Meryl Bonarigo are the co-founders of Messina Hoff Winery, and they talk to me about the early days of Messina Hoff and the Texas wine industry. They share how Texas wine consumers can help the industry grow and share some encouraging words for new wineries. But first, the Texas wine news. There's a disappointing rebranding at the State Fair of Texas, but then we'll get into a few bright spots, including your chance to further your education on Texas wine. Whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, welcome to This is Texas Wine. At the end of the podcast, I usually give gold stars for great things I see happening in the Texas wine industry and sometimes demerits for things that need improvement. Well, this demerit is so huge that I'm talking about it at the top of the show. Here's the issue. The State Fair of Texas has rebranded the Texas Wine Garden and replaced the previously all-Texas wine list to include mostly wines of the world. Now only 13% of the offerings on the wine list are Texas wines. I wrote about it last week, and I'll link to the full article, but basically, Texas wine and the State Fair go way, way back to the tenure of former Agriculture Commissioner Susan Combs. She served when George Bush was governor of Texas. Prior to her tenure, there was no Texas wine at the State Fair, but under her leadership, not only was Texas Wine Month created, but Texas wine finally showed up at the State Fair. Over the years, there have been various iterations of the Texas Wine Garden. Many years, wineries were invited to sign up to pour at one of the wine garden's tasting windows. Then in 2018, the fair started naming what they call blue ribbon selections each year, and their concessions operators poured these wines in the wine garden and even offered them for sale in a mixed case after the fair. Well, this year, the Texas Wine Garden has been replaced with a new concept. It's called the Grove on Nimitz, and the focus of the list is wines from around the world. There are just four Texas wines, which is hugely disappointing. I mentioned it in the article, and I'll repeat it here, that I worked with the fair from 2020 through last year, 2022, to select the wines for the wine garden, to manage the communications with the wineries, and to write blog posts for the fair. Actually, the State Fair of Texas was my most valuable client in 2022, so this issue is personally painful, as well as just being a huge setback for the Texas wineries that were finally getting some airtime at the State Fair. Now remember, the State Fair's mission is to support Texas agriculture and all things Texan. You can still find Texas wineries on select days. Three Texas wineries will be pouring Texas wine at the Go Texan Pavilion their Hidden Hanger, Triple N Ranch Winery, and Red Caboose. The schedule for these events is in the article on ThisIsTexasWine.com. Also, on October 13th and 14th, you can taste the winners of the Vintners' Cup, which I announced on the last podcast. If you are as disappointed as I am about this recent development at the State Fair of Texas, please provide feedback to the State Fair. You can do that by emailing info at BigTex.com. You can also write to the Texas Department of Agriculture, the Texas Economic Development and Tourism, and your state representatives. Elisa Jones reminds us that it's not enough just to complain on social media. We actually need to write our representatives and ask for change. Wineries can also talk to their regional Twigger representatives. You can submit a letter to the editor, and I'll list these suggestions and emails in the show notes. A new certification class for the Advanced Specialist of Texas Wine begins on October the 18th. This is the Level 2 class and is only open to students who've already taken the Level 1 class through the Texas Wine School with Dr. Russ Kane. The class is conducted over Zoom, so it's open to everyone, no matter your location, and it's held on four Wednesday nights starting October 18th. If you're interested, register very soon so that you can get the materials and the wine before the class starts. You've heard me mention the Rhone Rangers on this podcast. It made the news section when William Chris joined a while back. I've been in touch with Larry Schaefer, owner and winemaker of Tercero Wines, who's also the VP of the Rhone Rangers Board of Directors. And he says that they would be excited to have more Texas wineries learn about this organization, especially because these Rhone varieties are becoming really prevalent out there. He says that William Chris joined Rhone Rangers last year and actually flew out to California and took part in events both in Paso Robles in February, which is their main event of the year, and a smaller event that they did in Sonoma in June. Here's a little bit more information about Rhone Rangers. The purpose of Rhone Rangers is to educate both consumers and the trade about Rhone varieties, which are grown domestically throughout the U.S., He says, as you can imagine, the majority of our 100-member wineries are located on the West Coast, mainly in California. But a growing number of wineries in Oregon and Washington, Colorado, Michigan, Virginia, and Texas are joining as well. The goal is to continue to expand winery membership outside of California for a few reasons. Number one, he says, as William, Chris, and others are proving, Rhone varieties can and do grow well outside of the areas where people usually associate them. Number two, they want to offer opportunities for wineries in states outside of the West Coast to introduce their wines to these regions via pouring opportunities and various events. And they also want to start doing targeted events outside of the West Coast, and Texas is certainly on their list. Membership in the Rhone Rangers is currently $400 per year. This gets you a couple things from a customized page on their website, the ability to be involved with Rhone Rangers social media for your events, You would have access to pour at various Roan Ranger events. Pouring at those events is a bit extra, but he notes that the fees for these events are very small compared to many other tastings, just about $100 to $200 per event. He says, our organization is truly nonprofit, and our goal is to provide as much as we can for both our members and the consumers or trade in the most reasonable manner possible. We have a hardworking board of supervisors who are frugal in the best of ways. So if you do join Rone Rangers now, that fee will cover the rest of this calendar year and all of 2024. If that's something that you want to talk more about, I'm sure folks at William Chris would be happy to chat with you about it. And also I could get you in touch with Larry. I've got a link to the membership information on the Roan Rangers website. So please check the show notes for that. The Local Palate is a Southern food culture magazine and it tells the stories behind the people, places and foodways that make up this diverse and dynamic culinary region. Well, in the magazine's most recent Wine Lovers issue, Kelsey Kramer from William Chris Wine Company and I were both included as 25 women defining Southern wine. You can see our interview sections on the podcast Instagram page which is at Texas Wine Pod, and also check out an online article about what the wine pros are drinking this fall. Karen Bonarigo is another pro that's quoted. My pick is a Texas Dry Rosé, and Karen recommends the Messina Hoff Private Reserve Cab Franc. Kelsey mentions a rich white wine such as a Texas Roussanne. Continuing on with wine recommendations, Lana Bordelot has another article on Forbes in which she recommends a Texas wine. The article is titled Rosés that Power into Fall, and one of her picks is the Spicewood Vineyard's Rosé of San Jovese 2022 from the Texas Hill Country. She says tangy tropical fruits laced through a strawberry field, a bit earthy, a bit creamy, and a medium body that pairs up with light meals like turkey burgers, or washes down some cheddar goldfish crackers, as I did. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. If you've found value from this podcast, I invite you to consider supporting the podcast with a donation. You can do that on the website, This is TexasWine.com. then click support the podcast. This fall, I'm going to be judging three different Texas wine competitions. But did you know that wine judges almost always volunteer their time and don't get paid for their travel expenses? My podcast sponsorship, consulting gigs, and listener financial support have really slowed down this fall. So I welcome your support either through donations, which you can find on my website, or I'd be happy to talk to you about podcast sponsorship. I also do content writing, wine education, and consulting. So let's figure out a way to work together. Thanks, y'all. It was really an honor to sit down with Paul and Meryl Bonarigo on the eve of GrapeFest. We met at the Messina Hoff Tasting Room in Grapevine, and I got to hear firsthand about some of the pivotal moments in the Messina Hoff story and the development of the Texas wine industry. Here's our conversation. We are sitting here in Grapevine, Texas, and we're on the eve of the 37th annual GrapeFest. And I got a little nugget out of your book that I reread yesterday and learned that perhaps if it wasn't for you talking about Texas wine at a conference, Grape fest may have never started. So, Meryl, do you want to talk about how that all came to be? Isn't that amazing?
1: P.W. McCallum, who is the gentleman that made all this happen, really, shared that story just today with his, his group that came in from Barossa in Scotland. And I love to hear that story over and over again because it so reminds me of how we got started in the beginning. It was one of those things that wasn't planned, but it happened, right? The Lord just provided that opportunity and opened a door and we walked through it. And I happened to be speaking in, P.W. Say it was 1981, but it was at a conference in Wichita Falls, Texas Highways Magazine flew me there to share about the new burgeoning Texas wine industry because we had all just gotten started. And I had my slideshow, and I had the wines, and I got there. They, we flew in. We drove to this conference, and we had the wine in the trunk. And P.W. McCallum just happened to be there when we opened the trunk, and I was trying to get the wine out to take in, and he volunteered to carry my case of wine in. That's how we first met, and he was in the audience that I was sharing this with. Now, fast forward years later, when he is the convention and bureau, a Visitor's Bureau Chief here, he decides to do grape fest. Because he sees Grapevine as significant icon to the Texas wine industry. And that's how we got started. That's how Grapefest got started. All because he just happened to be there, which I don't believe in just happened. I just think it was a God thing. Well, that's how we got started, too, at the winery. Because Paul was this great physical therapist who just happened to have a patient who was a graduate student at a and working on his dissertation in Great Visibility in Texas. And it was through their conversation and therapy that we ever got started planting anyway.
0: I put those two together on my notes because I thought both of these instances, this, this chance meeting that might not have been just chance, right. have really set the path for you. So do you want to say a little bit about Ron Perry?
2: Yes, uh, Ron mm, sprained his ankle playing intramural basketball. He's referred to me. I'm rehabbing him. He talks about his Portuguese background. My family is Italian. And his family was involved in grape growing in California. And so Ron explained to me at the time that the A&M was given some money to investigate where grapes varieties would do best in the state. It was not his PhD. His PhD was on rootstock development. We had another meeting with Ron about two months ago. Hadn't really met Ron for years, and then we decided that we should revisit the whole story again just to get clarity on from his perspective. Because we we had our perspective, but I wanted to get Ron's perspective. And at the time at AM, the Dean of Horticulture was a Mormon and AM had gotten a bunch of money to see where wine grapes would do best. And the dean gave the money to Ron to do the research. So we were one of a few vineyards planted in different parts of the state to see what varieties would do best. And so we had 14 varieties that were planted in at Messinahof in Bryan, and those same 14 varieties were planted in other vineyards around the state. And, you know, some of the varieties did real well and some of them didn't do very well. And yet those varieties that didn't do well at our place did very well in West Texas. So Ron started mapping out where vinifera, which is the European grape, probably should grow and where French-American hybrid grapes should grow and where Native American grapes should grow. And we concluded that at our vineyard the black Spanish or Lenoir was very suitable. Blanc de Bois did not exist at the time. So that was not even a a consideration at the time. So basically what we did is we planted one variety from Arkansas that still lives today. And we now call it Messina half-white. It's still growing fine. Later we planted Blanc de Bois, but the 18 of the 22 acres is Lenoir. So it's our dominant grape, and it's what we produce as port. And Ron was at A&M from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Then he moved on to Michigan, where he became the dean of horticulture. And, and now his son graduated from Michigan State. He claims to be the only graduate that actually completed the full program. And And Ron has recently retired. So we really got a chance to see the full circle of what happened to Ron Perry because, you know, we knew Ron when he was at A&M. We met him once once later in the hill country, but then we had a chance to have dinner and really catch up and really get the whole story of Ron Perry.
0: That's great. I actually watched that clip and that was a fun reunion to see. And also to know that his son is now one of the premier winemakers in Michigan. So I'll I'll actually put a link to that if people want to go watch that. Yeah,
2: And, and, you know, they're cold climate, really cold climate. And uh, when we visited with his son, uh, his son talked about how hard it is for them to get full ripening. So they do an outstanding job with white grapes. And
0: sparkling wine, yeah.
2: They really do great work. But the reds are really challenging. And yet... He was producing some very nice red wines.
0: I found it fascinating to read this book, Family, Tradition, and Romance, the Messina Hoff story. And a few years ago, you guys sent me a copy of that. And I, I read it at the time, but I really went back through it last night and and refreshed my memory on the story. And I got such a kick out of a lot of the stories of the early Messina Hoff when you were operating first, before you even started operating as a winery, and you had planted... A bunch of Christmas trees because you thought you might have a Christmas tree farm, and then later when you started your small winery and you were operating out of a mobile home, you had guests in the house, and you came out one Sunday morning and there were guests in your living room. I mean, so many stories, and I'm glad that that you took the time to write this book. It seemed like that was a project when we were kind of shut down for COVID that you really took a minute to to reminisce and put some of that down on paper. So that's really a gift. And I'm glad that we have that as the Texas wine community to refer back to because you talk about so many of the pivotal points of Texas wine history. And I'm sure it brought up a lot of fun memories for you guys to put that together.
1: It did. And I think everyone has stories, but they often get lost, you know, because they don't take the time to write them down or or someone else doesn't. So we were actually thankful for that time, that focus time and opportunity to be able to gather them all up and... Put them together again,
2: yeah. Because people see Messina Hof today, but they don't remember or didn't know what Messina Hof looked like way back in the eighties. You know, when you have a forty-year-old mobile home that is your winery, and a carport that has wine tanks that are from the dairy industry. You know, we've come a long way, and you know the struggles that we had. And I think, I think explaining the struggles, I think brings the humanity behind our industry because many wineries today are built and they're fantastic places right from the start and they really don't have a humble beginning and unfortunately we see a lot of those types of wineries fail because I think you really have to appreciate a humble beginning many times before you can appreciate the success that you wind up getting with a lot of hard work.
1: And don't you think it gives hope as well to others who perhaps wouldn't try because it seems overwhelming, but they see that there has been success from humble beginnings. And so they're more willing to try to take that risk.
2: Right.
0: And more, it seems like people might not always be as as honest on social media, because that's how generally we're watching new wineries spring up and we see only what they're posting on social media, which is maybe all the pretty parts, not the struggle. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the thing that uh, amazed me, people ask this, what type of economic background did we have? And I said, well, my mother was an Italian-American who grew up in the Depression and she taught me Mama Rosa economics. And it was a very simple economic issue. If you don't have the money in your pocket, you can't afford it. And that that's how we we developed it's enough. It was from the ground up. I think we had 18 developments that that were in different 18 phases and it was very wise for us to do that. Uh pay the, as you go. Yeah, pay as you go. In the book we talk about Merrill did a fantastic job of presenting to the bank a $250,000 proposal for a loan. And when we concluded the the meeting, he told us, he said, congratulations, you should self-fund it. And I went out of the meeting, and I walked up to Merrill and said, congratulations. And I asked her what type of a loan self-funding was, and <laughs> she said, he turned down the loan.
1: <laughs> that was a blessing. And though. that was that a blessing. Really it, it was truly, a blessing. A, we were
2: not ready for that much money to be infused into the winery at the time, and I, I have always told him he was the best banker we ever had because he turned down a loan.
0: It worked out in the end. Yeah. Another thing that struck me from the early days is really how much of a partnership the winery was in the development, and Paul, I feel like you're the one now who is more in the limelight, but Meryl, you were you were running this while Paul was still a physical therapist and had his own practice. And I loved hearing about how you really incorporated a lot of the cooking aspects, the the food pairings and the cooking school and time. And, and that was such an important part of it that I know that Karen and, and Paul are also continuing to this day.
1: They are. I'm so excited to see what they're taking it to the next level too. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, we had the opportunity early on to go to Europe and we... Were able to experience wine and food of different regions in several different countries as we were getting started and just that whole that whole social and cultural base of family at the table and the food and the wine and how it all went together touched us we wanted to be able to bring that to Texas and to, to Messina Hoff and make that the focal point so I think that was also part of the, the way we could then share, with other people because it was all about education. Nobody knew Texas wine. Nobody really thought there could ever be Texas wine. We were told so many times, you can't grow grapes in Texas. You can't make great wine in Texas. Can't 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 can't. But fortunately, we we were also raised with the with God, everything is possible, nothing is impossible. And so all of that just kind of came together at the right time, to be able to produce something that would bring people in, share our dinner table with them, share our wine and food and the vineyards and the whole the ambiance of what we were trying to create. And it, it, I think, helped to bond them to the idea of Texas wines.
2: You know, that once you get to know Merrill, she is probably the most positive individual I have ever met in my life. And um, her attitude of uh, everything is possible really prevails us, and it prevailed us then and now because of all the negativity that existed back then and still does. Uh, And her attitude was that if the Lord has a plan for us to be successful, it'll happen. And it did. It did. Because back in those days, like you said, I was practicing physical therapy, and when I would be writing the work orders to do a wine, she's the one who executed it. She did it. She worked with all the employees. She did all the payroll. I mean, she was a one-person show. And um, It's a
1: family affair. I mean, we really shoulder-to-shoulder, shoulder, and I, Paul and Karen are doing the same thing today. They're doing the same thing. Shoulder-to-shoulder, right? side-by-side.
2: And we were very blessed to run into a bunch of people that shared the vision that we had. Our growers in the early days, they felt like partners. You know, when I went to the High Plains in 1983 and said to the growers, we had a grower meeting up there, and I said, my goal is that we will work together as partners, and my goal is that my son and daughter, or if I had a daughter, but my son would be working with their sons and daughters in the future. Well, that's exactly what's happening today. And many of our growers have been growers since the 80s. And Paul has kept that same type of attitude. He, his philosophy is, is just as ours, win-win. It's always a win-win thing. It's You never get into a situation with a grower where it's good for the winery and bad for the grower. It has to be a partnership.
0: And so critical in Texas. I know that's important everywhere, but Texas is such a unique state where a lot of the growers are in one location and a lot of the fruit comes into other parts of the state. So I feel like that collaboration is absolutely critical.
2: Yeah, because every, every year, either you have too many grapes chasing a, a home or not enough grapes and everyone's trying to you know buy grapes. This year, we have a fantastic crop. 2023 will be as good as 2011. And 2011 was the best crop that Texas has had since we've been involved since 1977, and we're getting outstanding quality. We have good quantity in spite of very harsh situation, because in the in the high plains they've been in a drought situation, just as most of the parts of state of the state have been in, in drought.
0: You mentioned going around the world and seeing food and wine customs of different countries. And I know even the name Messina Hoff references your places where you are from originally. I want to talk a little bit about when you have taken Texas wine out into the world. And there are two stories in particular that were relayed in the book that I'd love to get your thoughts on. And one was the white burgundy experience versus texas chardonnay and, and number 2 is your trip to bordeaux what did that mean at the time and, and how do we have instances like that even today that will make an impact to move the industry forward
2: well george ray mckeachern and texas a&m were responsible for putting those trips together and our first trip was to burgundy where we went to burgundy and we toured we would go to class in Dijon and go to class all morning, and then all afternoon we would tour the uh, chateaus. And uh, we got to appreciate Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in a very big way. And at the conclusion of our trip, we were going to do a shootout where we had Texas Chardonnay, Texas Pinot against the Chardonnays from Burgundy and the Pinot Noirs from Burgundy. And the the wineries in in bone and in the Burgundy area were very hospitable. They were very nice to us. They shared and they were totally convinced that there was no way that a Texas Chardonnay or a Texas Pinot Noir was going to anywhere near come close to theirs. And we did this blind. We did a blind tasting. They had like 10 of theirs and 10 of ours. And we did this tasting and sure enough, we wound up winning the best Chardonnay. And I don't think we had enough Pinot Noir to even do a total shootout. I think it was just Chardonnays that we compared and they were shocked. They were, they were shocked. We were shocked. (laughs) Everyone was shocked. And Chardonnay is one of those varieties that if you can grow it in Texas, you can make outstanding Chardonnay. It's one of our most challenging grapes to grow. So you don't see a lot of Chardonnay grown in Texas. But what we can grow can be of outstanding quality. When we went to Bordeaux, that was, I guess, two years later. We went to Bordeaux.
1: 94, I think.
2: And and so we would go to class in Bordeaux in the morning again. And then we would tour the chateaus in the afternoon. And then at the conclusion of that, that was supposed to be very well publicized. And we were supposed to be getting media from France. There, were no, there was no media from the United States that we were expecting. But, you know, we thought we would have some media from, from France. And we were at Chateau Angelou. Uh, they had just been elevated in, the, in their rankings. so And I had the privilege and Meryl had the privilege of sitting alongside with the owner of Chateau Angelou. Beautiful location. And he was very confident, to say the least. He said, I don't want you to be disappointed, Paul, when we do the results of this. We've been making wine here for hundreds of years, and you are just beginning your journey. And I thanked him, even though before we left to go to Bordeaux, we had done the shootout in, in Bryan. And I was very confident that our wines would show very well. And so we did it, and sure enough, we wound up winning and I turned to my guest, my my host, and said, Monsieur, although you have been making wine in Bordeaux for many years, we learned very quickly in Texas. And that was the end of a lovely friendship because he <laughs> didn't say another word to me. And, uh, you know, you would think with the judgment of Paris that that was, that was a lesson learned. But I think they were so confident that they would you know beat the pants off of Texas that they felt very confident in doing it and and I think they they were shocked they were shocked because back then St Genevieve was was owned uh, in part by A French company. And so they were... Cordier and Richter. Richter. Richter was one of the largest nurseries in the world. And Cordier was one of the largest French producers in the world. So they had some very outstanding chateaus that they owned. So there was a close relationship between France and Texas because of that relationship with the University of Texas lands. And and they set a lot of it up themselves, and, and it was an unbelievable trip. I mean, we were having sauternes and, and first growths, and we had the chef from Ton Rothschild that cooked every for night. us every night.
1: At a I different mean, chateau every night. When
2: we look back on that trip, we pinch ourselves to say, I mean, when we were at Petrus, we did a vertical. so. We were hopeful that we were going to taste a wine. We had verticals in every one of those chateaus. It was amazing. It was truly amazing.
1: I think for me it was really eye-opening from the standpoint that it was my first time to actually experience international wine and food like that. I would say ancient international food and wine because it's such an old culture you know, and it was just, it's so embedded into everything that they do. And to experience that, we went to the market, and we saw where they buy the fresh produce and the, got their meats. And then to be inside these very old chateaus and wine cellars and to be listening to the actual winemaker explain his process and his philosophy between winemaking between wine and expression of terroir was actually new. For me, I I wasn't familiar with that. I had read things about chateaus and and French wines, but that really hit home that this this is living the wine and food experience. And so it made it, for me, even more important in our goal to try to recreate something like that for Texas coming back.
2: And as soon as we came back, immediately we planted a garden right next to the restaurant in order to try to really... Duplicate that type of a style where the produce was grown right on the property, and the chef was agreeable and wanted to be serving fresh straight from the garden and and, and it 's a very special relationship when you 're growing it on the on the property you 're producing the wine on the property, encouraging the food and wine experience because you know back then. Texas wine consumers were pretty naive. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of sophisticated wine consumers. We had a very select group that collected top growths from Burgundy and Bordeaux, but the vast majority of people really did not have that kind of experience with food and wine pairing. And, and and so when we started doing more and more of that type of an event at the winery, we really started developing people who really got excited about the whole experience of food and wine and fresh and all that.
0: That's great. I actually also came to wine through food because I was interested in in cooking and dining and then when i would be handed a wine list it was just like well (laughs) what do i do with this i didn't know anything about wine so then i learned about the wines of the world because when you go through these certifications and the official wine education for these various groups texas isn't in the book so it wasn't until later i learned about texas wine But since you've brought up restaurants, I would love to get your thoughts. For one thing, I was interested in the book that you talked about a program that I guess the Texas Department of Agriculture and possibly the Texas Restaurant Association collaborated on so that a restaurant was encouraged to be local, not only in food, but in wine. What a concept. We're still working on that. (laughs) We are. (laughs) And I know that's an area of particular interest. I've seen you do some social media posts about that. So how are we going to get more Texas wines in our Texas restaurants?
2: The uh, most effective and the fastest is through the consumer. Honestly, you know, we've been uh, blowing the horn of Texas wines in local restaurants for ever since 1977 and you have a couple of influential customers that walk into a restaurant that dine in that particular restaurant a couple of times maybe a month and your wine is on the wine list within a week
1: and we had a program that was a card that they had printed. I think the Texas Department of Agriculture printed that. Mm-hmm. And it said, conserve Texas water, drink Texas wine. On the back side, you said, you said it pr- was printed, I really enjoyed my time at your restaurant, but it would have been much nicer if you had served Texas wines. And then it gave a blank if you wanted to write in your favorite. And we gave all those cards out to our best customers. And we said, please use this. Every time you go to a restaurant, if they have no Texas wine, put it in the check. I cannot tell you how many calls I would get the next day from that restaurant because they had a really good customer that came in and they've left me a card and they want your wine. I could have knocked on that door of that restaurant for months trying to get my wine in there, but it only took one good customer to make the request and it happened.
0: Interesting. Well, I know Texas Wine Lover website has created those cards again. At least you can download and, and print some. I saw that, yes. So that's interesting to have the actual winery say, go to your favorite restaurants and request our wine. Yes. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a great strategy, too.
2: <laughs> and then get the cooperation of your distributor, or you have to be prepared to deliver the wine to that particular right. restaurant. And, and right now we have two major distributors And they're under huge amounts of pressure from the big guys, you know, the gallows of the world, the constellations of the world. And a lot of times people don't even realize that you take a gallow, they may have 50 to 100 different brand names that you're not even aware that they belong to gallow or constellation the same way. And they're the ones that wind up on the wine list and you're wondering and you're scratching your head, how come I'm not on the wine list? because there's incentives that have been given and all sorts of things. But if the consumer is supporting the, te- the Texas winery and saying to the, the restaurant owner, now that works when it's a like a standalone restaurant, a mom and pop, that type of thing. If it is a chain, like we're on the wine list at Saltgrass Steakhouses, that is a very intuitive wine buyer who is knowing their market and when you think of saltgrass you think of texas beef you think of texas type food it made sense to put a texas wine on the wine list and it it is it's in the top 2 of their best selling red so you know when people say oil oh, well, texas wine if you did put it on the list it doesn't sell that's not true that is not true if you put it on the list it will sell, uh, especially if it's a quality product. It has to be at a, at a good price point because that's another challenge of Texas wines is that a lot of Texas wines are a lot more expensive than some of the uh, California wines. So it has to be priced right. And if given a decent shot and then are you willing, the winery is willing, to go into the restaurant and start educating the wine staff – Making sure that all of the servers know about the wine and become ambassadors of the of the Texas wine, you've got a decent shot at being successful.
1: I think that's a real key word is education. It's been our key word since we very we began just introducing Texas wine, but now it's to integrate Texas wine into everyday life as just as one of those French regions or Italian regions or Spanish regions culturally embrace and highlight their own food and wine of their region. They don't highlight food and wine of other regions.
2: Because when we, when we tell the story, imagine going to Chianti and putting a French wine on a wine list. You would be ostracized by everyone in the communities because you are not supporting their lifestyle, their cuisine, their everything. I mean, a few years back, Tuscany was having a problem with restaurants moving into Tuscany that were not Italian. Tuscany was losing its identity to food. And they started cracking down and saying, look, we don't need any other type formats because we're losing our identity. Well, Texas has a great identity. I mean, you know, uh, when you start looking at Texas beef and Texas lamb and and great produce and all the seafood that comes out of the Gulf, there's no excuse. We've got great food. And now we have great Texas wine. So it, it makes sense for that partnership to occur. But it's going to take a lot of work. One year, Marilyn and I did 212 wine dinners and food and wine pairings in one year we did that many and it was a a hard year we were on the road constantly and it paid off we started getting we started getting inroads and all of us uh, have to make do their part and and the other thing that i think is imperative we would go into an account and they'd say well i like your wine And I'm going to take this Texas wine off the list, and I'm going to put your wine on the list. And I'd say, no thanks. I want you to add my wine to the list, but I do not want you to take another Texas wine off off the list. And I think everyone needs to be able to do that.
1: Paul used to have this saying that, you know, the Texas wine industry went from the Pet Rock stage to the Rodney Dangerfield stage. I think there is a progression and for te- when Texas gets to the point where we are, we have a good critical mass of wineries now. We need to get wineries that will be transitioning to the second generation and the third generation. Once we get those deep roots of people growing grapes and making great wines in Texas, we really have an industry. When we get the Texans to say, where are your Texas wines on the wine list? Because we are proud of our Texas wines we support our Texas wines then you have a real long-term industry and we're beginning to see that i mean it, we're in, it's evolving but we still have so far to go before we're there mm. we're we're thankful that we are in our second generation and there are several other Texas families that are now moving into their second generation that's very positive
0: i like how you lay that out in the in the book and i know not every family has a a child that perhaps wants to carry on the family tradition, and I'm glad in your case it did. I f- have found it interesting over time. People have said Texas wine today is way better than it used to be, that Texas wine has improved so much. And I always wonder how that feels to someone who's been making wine in Texas for as long as you guys have. Do you, do you agree that Texas wine is that much better?
2: Well, the, to some degree, I agree with that statement because when we would come up to grape Fest, one of the things that I used to always enjoy doing is before it started because we we used to do Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday I would go around to all of the Texas wineries and and taste their wines and I would encourage them to come over to my place and taste our wines and back in the good old days when this festival just started, it used to be right here in Liberty Park. The first year, we only had five hundred people showed up. I think we had fourteen, maybe fourteen wineries that were pouring maybe. back then.
1: I don't, maybe not that many. I
2: would say less than half. You would say could stand up to what is being made today. Today, I would say that maybe less than fifteen percent would not, in my opinion, be considered commercially good enough to really be out there in the marketplace. So we've come a long, long way. And I I could tell you it it has come in the vineyard. In our early days, if you said to a grower, I really would like for you to make sure that you don't overwater so that the pH gets above four, they would say, what's pH? My growers, they can do pH, they can do sugar tests i mean they're very sophisticated today so they have come a long long way and the wineries have come a long long way we have a lot of professionally trained or interned under a professionally trained winemaker in the state more so than ever before i i rarely come upon a wine that i'll go that that shouldn't be in the marketplace And I've seen the same thing in California. I've seen the same thing in Washington State, and other countries where you know you taste the wine and you go, "My goodness, that's not worthy of being in the in the market." So it's not unique to Texas. But yes, I I mean to to a great extent, I would agree with that. I think the quality. Look at the
1: medals. Oh, and that's the other thing. You know,
2: when Bobby Cox and Yano Estacado won the gold medal, gold medal, not a double gold, but a gold medal at the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition, it made every major newspaper in in the country.
1: And that was in the 80s.
2: Yeah, and that was 86, I think it was. I think last year, Texas won 14, maybe 16 double gold medals at the same competition, and you didn't see it in, well in any of those same publications. So it has changed dramatically. I mean, the 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 well, a couple of years back, I, I did a comparison of the number of entries of Texas and the number of entries of Washington and the number of entries of Oregon and the number of entries of California versus the number of double golds. And Texas had as many or more double golds than any of the other four. I also say
1: in the early years, the only way you could taste a Texas wine was if you went to the winery. So it wasn't like you were constantly being reintroduced to that wine to be able to taste it over and over again. You had to go to the winery to taste it or buy some bottles and take home. And as distribution has increased and as the number of wineries has increased there's greater exposure. Mm -hmm. So I might be able to taste that wine and sample it multiple times to refresh my memory rather than just that one moment, that moment of truth, did I decide that I liked it or not. And also I have to say that when you are relying on the experience at the winery, it's not always just about the wine that you're tasting it's about the experience that you're having there, too, and the memory that you take away. So there were so many other factors there. It's, it's not apples and apples today, I think. The and, metals make it much easier. Yeah, and,
2: and one of the things that I've been saying for the last 40 years, when I was 21, French wine was the right wine to be drinking. It wasn't California, not by any means. It was French and a few Italian Well, then I was in the military, I lived in California, I did go to UC Davis, I went to Napa, and I started realizing there were some pretty nice wines in California, but still French wines and Italian wines were my favorite, and that's that age group that is so critical, is the 21 to 35-year-old age group. Well, when you see on a Saturday all the Aggies that are at our winery, Messina Hoff, for many of those, is their favorite wine. 25 years ago, it couldn't have been their favorite wine because they never would, you know, they didn't come out to the winery like that. But now they're interested. They're the, we have Justin Shiner give, does a class on wine appreciation. And Dr. McKeachurn used to teach that class. And he would have 25 students. Justin has 225 students. So you could see the dramatic improvement and desire to know more about wine. And, the, um, and
1: being impressed while you're young, you do take oh, that with you. Well, and You, you never forget that.
2: Forever. I mean, for, yeah. the, for the rest of your life, if, if all of a sudden Texas is maybe one of the top two wines that you prefer, well, that's a lifetime of Texas wine consumer. You know, and and once you do that, I don't, I don't think all of a sudden you're going to say, well, actually, I think French wines are my favorite, because when you when you like in most of the stores in our area in Bryan Collar Station, the French wine section now is so small, and the Texas wine section is so much bigger than the French section, that, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> it'd be hard pressed. How, how could you become a, a French wine consumer? if you just shopped grocery stores, because the section is so small. You'd
0: probably uh, just be drinking all gallo if you were. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what, that, that's what would
2: happen. So it's made a big difference. And, and you know, in festivals like this, you know, back, back in the beginning, before Grapefest, uh, I guess Fredericksburg had a festival, a couple of hundred people. Now they get 25,000. You know, here, you know, 260,000 makes a big difference.
0: I want to talk a little bit about industry leadership. Paul, you've been the president of Twigga three times. Mm -hmm. And one of the lessons learned that you pull out in in this book, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. You say, always legislate for the common good, not self-interest, and never speak badly about another Texas winery because you are destroying the Texas brand that includes you do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Such a good reminder.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it's one that we've lived by. You know, in the in the, again, good old days when I was first president, I'm riding in a plane to Lubbock and I'm sitting next to the CEO of another Texas winery that will go unnamed. And I said, you know, we could do some fantastic things together. And he said, Paul, he said, if we can do something that's good for you, and good for me, I have no interest in it at all. But if you could come up with a program that is bad for you and good for me, I'm all for it. And I and I told him, I said, you know, that attitude is not going to be conducive to growing an industry because we are challenged by weather, by the marketplace. Just the art form of making wine. I mean, we don't have to be concerned about you know competing so aggressively against each other because Texas is less than three percent of the market in the state of Texas. Now go to New York, which would be a lovely market for to have three percent of the market. <laughs> We're zero in New York. We're zero and probably point something in California, because actually California is our second best state. But but you have to have a cohesive industry. And the thing that I've been so proud about the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association is they've worked very, very hard to keep the grower and the wineries in the same organization.
1: And that, because, when you were president, that was huge for you. Oh, They have to work together marketing as well as technical.
2: We we had a bunch of challenges where people came to us and said, we want to have two separate organizations, a grower organization and a winery organization. And I said, one cannot exist without the other. And that's foolish to do that. And California probably has half a dozen, maybe a dozen different organizations. and, and, And a lot of them don't pull together. So they would be more effective if... They really had fewer organizations.
0: And that includes legislation, which I know has been a big part of of the past several administrations, maybe since the beginning of TWIGA, actually. <laughs>
2: right. Well, and, and we were blessed with Susan Combs.
0: Yes. I wanted to bring that up because her name keeps popping up as I'm researching the origins of the Texas wine industry because she was agriculture commissioner under George Bush. During her term, Texas Wine Month became a thing. So it sounds like she was quite the champion for Texas wine. And wine at the the State Fair (laughs) of Texas?
2: Yeah. Before she was the commissioner, the State Fair had no Texas wine at the State Fair. Made no sense. The Governor's Bowl never had a Texas wine (laughs) before her. It was always some... California winery. It, it made absolutely no sense. I mean, when you, when you just say it out loud, you say, oh, that's impossible. You can't have the governor of Texas, his ball, and have a California wine. But yeah, that's exactly what it was. And, you know, as proud as Texas is, sometimes we just kind of overlook stupid things like that it made no sense it made absolutely no sense and that's what she said at the time she was the commissioner we had billy clayton speaker of the house we had pete laney who was his protege we had jay nelson and we had had vicky uh, truitt uh,
1: didn't you vicky truitt
2: from grapevine again frank Uh, Madla was there Madla. i mean we had a bunch of great Texans that were really promoting our Texas wine industry. And it amazed me in the last two sessions, you know, you keep hearing, oh, we're going to have a big surplus. We're going to have a big surplus, a great opportunity to really get behind the Texas wine industry. And then all of a sudden you, you have a bill that goes up that A&M and UT and Texas Tech all work together, which is really hard to do to get them all working together. And they promoted a bill that would have been able to do marketing research, research and and really get our industry boosted. And the legislature turned the, the turned the bill down. It I mean again, makes no sense. We're now contributing twenty billion. It's a B billion dollars the economy in the state and we can't get money from the legislature to help promote the industry makes no sense
0: what was the reason behind the denial on that bill do you know
2: oh i'm sure that in the middle of the night there was some lobbying group that just squashed the thing because it made no sense i mean it what a great investment i mean a&m is about to launch a viticultural and oenology degree. That means that those graduates are going to have jobs in the state of Texas. Texas Tech has been working on doing the exact same thing. Grayson Community College has been working diligently at that. And to think, you know, so now we can educate our people and they'll go to California. It makes no sense to do that. It just it, it, It's mind-boggling. And so we need to get the legislature really to invest time and effort into going to the wineries and developing friendships with them and seeing how hard it is to, you know, to really develop an industry, you know, because diversified agriculture is really critical. I think part of the problem is the fact that they say, how many acres of grapes do we have in the state of Texas? How many acres of grapes do we have for cotton? And so what make- about
0: the value of the two crops? Absolutely. That's the issue, right?
2: That's right. I mean, it's a huge, huge difference because it's so value added because we grow the grapes, we sell the grapes to a winery, they employ people, they spend money in the community, and so you get this reverberating benefit over and over and over again. Whereas, you know, let's say you have a crop... That you sell and it winds up in China or you, it winds up in India and they're making, you know, jeans out of it. You know, you get a benefit, but you don't get the same kind of benefit that you have. Plus the fact that, to me, tourism is so critical for the state of Texas. When you start looking at Grapefest and you see the rodeo in Houston and so many of the other types of things that are so Texan, Texas wine is a natural to be, to, you know, to, to be part of that.
0: I hate to tell you this, but as far as the State Fair of Texas goes, after several great years where they've done an all-Texas wine list and a Texas wine garden, the wine garden has been rebranded, and it's no longer the Texas wine garden, and the wine list is very few Texas wines. Oh, wow. No. That
2: is unbelievable.
0: That's so sad.
2: Mm.
0: And, you know, that's, I don't
1: understand that, being a Texan myself, and we've always been known as proud Texans. Texas, proud of Texas products, anything Texas, and yet we have these issues where we're, we won't serve Texas wines. We don't get behind them.
2: And, and so that's the type of thing it would really be interesting to see what influence was on that decision maker. How did that happen? Because more than likely, it's going to be something that As Texans, we'd all be very disappointed when we hear how that actually happened, because it makes no sense.
0: Right. And if, you know, the purpose of the fair is to promote Texas agriculture. Exactly. I mean, the agriculture commissioner whose poster is up and right next to the wine garden, it's like, that's the person that should be influencing to make sure there's Texas wine there. And yeah, advocating yeah standing on it yes
2: well Susan would go every year and she would be there promoting it I mean it would it's it it, it's just one of those things that you just say that's impossible there's no way that that could be true and I'm sure it is
1: I'm so sad to hear that (laughs) I know (laughs) I'm hearing it from you for the first time (laughs) sorry then I'm sure
0: I'm very disappointed I have hopes that the right person will exert whatever kind of influence needs to happen so that in the future that that decision will be reversed.
2: Well, we we stirred the pot pretty good last month when we discovered that the wine number 12 that Aggies all over the place are buying up because it's an Aggie wine made by good Texans. You turn the label around, and you find out it's made in Spain. And now there's been a lot of complaints back to the athletic department about that. And, you know, the the average person doesn't really read the label. <laughs> and uh, the first time I saw 12, I thought it was a Texas wine, too, and until I looked at it. And sure enough, it's made in Spain. So, uh I think we all have to become better advocates at at things like that that make no sense. And it was strictly a financial thing because it's a pay-to-play.
0: Licensing arrangement.
2: That's all it is. But there are things that people need to say, no, I'm not going to. That kind of money, forget about it. It's just not compatible with the philosophy of a great institution.
0: Well, I think if anyone can get through to the Aggies, it's going to be Merrill. <laughs> get come, Aggies.
2: <laughs> we have plenty of Texas uh, Aggie wineries now, so yeah. there's no excuse. That's yeah, right. we do,
1: and that's exciting, especially now when A and M is getting involved in the, the industry a, to such a degree. We're very excited about their new uh, dean of horticulture. At Dingra, because he is such a crusader and such an advocate, not just for the industry and the development of the program, but for educating the faculty, the staff, the public. He went out and he asked a lot of questions when he first got here to kind of get a lay of the land and understand. And what he came back with was, we need to start by having tastings here at a and because our faculty and staff doesn't even know about the industry here. And he did. It's called Spirited Learning. Every month he does a different beverage, you know, and food, pecans and wine and beer. and I mean, they do different things, but it's been an eye-opening experience for so many people that didn't even know we had so many producers in the state. But also it shows the support of the university for these programs and, and um, the industry that they want to be able to train people to lead. I think it's a great start. I hope that he can continue and that the university will help him continue to build that.
0: He has a lot of energy, and I love it, too. I oh, yeah, yeah. too. Oh. Yeah. Well, I've kept you quite a while. Are there any last thoughts that you would like to share? Well, first I want to thank you, for
1: your interest and support of the Texas industry and all that you've done. And I love the reporting and your open heart and mind. And you, you can see, I can, I can tell that you can see a vision of where the industry could be and what needs to happen to get there. And we just appreciate it. Messina Hoff, we're in this 47 years now. And we have seen so much happen. There were two wineries when we started and now there's over 900. We've seen now A&M really get involved very aggressively. I'm very excited about that. And we just hope that every, every Texan will su- pick a winery. Pick a, We hope it's Messina Hoff, <laughs> but pick a Texas winery and support it, advocate for it, and join the Messina Hoff family. We would love that.
2: And every time a consumer sees something that makes no sense, mm. do something about it. Ask for Texas Say something wine. about it. You know, every
1: restaurant, every retailer?
2: Because it's amazing how strong and important the consumer is. Because once the consumer voices their opinions, that moves mountains. And it's really critical that the, that the consumer realize how important they are. And, and every Texas winery should really nurture their consumers. Because they're, without them, they're out of business and they should never take, take for granted their consumers. Never. Because without them, there is no business. So
1: Right. No industry. And God bless Texas wine.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we can all get behind that. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. You've created a beautiful winery and a beautiful family. And I know that, that those things are both incredibly important to you. And I'm happy to talk about it. And I love seeing Karen here and there. I just saw her at Texom. So she's always so delightful. We're very blessed
1: to have a daughter-in-law who has such passion for the industry and who is willing to stand with her husband. It's a, it's a tough business like we've, we've been yeah. talking about. And, and she's a great mom and she does so many different things. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you, Paul and Merrill. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to purchase the Bonarigo's book, Family, Tradition, and Romance, The Messina Hoff Story. It's available on the Messina Hoff website, and you can also watch Paul's interview with Ron Perry. Stay tuned for a gold star. It's been a while since I had a new review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So if you haven't already, maybe you could go leave a few remarks. And finally, don't forget to visit the website to sign up for the occasional newsletter. That's where I'll communicate with you my recent wine events and some fun finds in wine and travel. Finally, let's end on a positive note. I've got a gold star, and this gold star goes out to the chef and staff at Sage Restaurant and Lounge in Fredericksburg, and to January and Kate of the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association, and to the wineries that poured at the recent Fall Winemakers Dinner, which was held at Sage. The Hill Country Wineries hold several of these dinners each year, and they're always somewhere really delicious, and they feature special wines and a lot of one-on-one time with winery representatives. I was lucky enough to get to sit with Brett and Chris Pernu of Aracel Vineyards, and it was also fun to meet the new winemaker at Coleman Cellar, Zachary Rains. Other wineries present include High Meadow, Stonehouse, Texas Heritage, and Texas Wine Collective. Chef Henry Gutkin developed and executed a creative menu that really highlighted the wines. The next winemakers dinner is going to be held on December the 3rd at Hill and Vine in Fredericksburg. That's one of my favorite restaurants in Fredericksburg to drink Texas wine. I was a media guest of Texas Hill Country Wineries, but it's worth your own hard-earned money to attend one of these dinners, I promise. Tickets will be on sale soon, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Clay Roop, and we're talking about TV Munson and early Texas viticulture and more from the history books. Until then, you can get in touch, send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. And finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com and download the app to help you plan your next trip to a Texas winery. Thanks for listening. Cheers, y'all.